This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I'm going to talk about the relationship between the contemplative life and the intellectual vocation from a Thomistic perspective. And here, in a way that I think complements and is distinct from what Professor Frey talked about yesterday in her second talk, the contemplative life is considered from the perspective of what could be called the theological contemplative life, the contemplative life of the Christian in faith. So I want to start by talking about faith itself, supernatural faith, as understood by St. Thomas in his analysis at the beginning of the Secunda Secundae, or the second part of the second part of the Summa. And I'm just going to make some summary comments. It's not a technical analysis. What Aquinas argues there is that Faith is a grace received into the intellect, the faculty of the mind, whereby upon the consent of the will, the free consent of the will to what God has revealed, the intellect is able through the medium of what God has revealed to attain knowledge of, and indeed we should say, I think, intellectual contact with what Aquinas says is the first truth. The first truth is God the mystery of the Trinity, the person of Christ, the person of the Father, person of the Holy Spirit. So faith is a grace or an light received into the intellect by which we can have access immediately to God and who God is without empirical evidence, but through the medium of divine revelation, which we consent to freely in love. And so the propulsion toward, or the consent of heart toward the acceptation of the truth about God is made possible by love and, in fact, desire, which is related to hope, so hope and love. And that's what's called living faith. Living faith is a faith not only consented to in love, but lived vibrantly in the habit of charity and hope, as opposed to dead faith. Dead faith is where you still have faith, but you're not acting on it. You've extinguished hope or extinguished charity. Is where living faith is, or formed faith is a faith, a life of the mind unto God, informed by charity and hope, living desire. Now, when Aquinas talks about acts of the mind, those ways that characterize our knowing in general, he talks about three natural acts of the mind apprehension, judgment, and reasoning. Apprehension is the intellect going out through the senses to gain purchase on the form, the essence or species or characteristics for that matter of a, of a thing around you. So if I walk in this room and I can tell you're all cardboard cutouts who are put here because this is a COVID football game, <laughs> but I start talking to you as if you are not car cardboard cutouts, but real people, I have made a misapprehension. But we don't do things like that. Now, why didn't we get into a rational argument and invite Descartes and Hume and Kant and other people to the argument about whether I could even know whether you are robots or cardboard cutouts? Because I apprehend immediately, pre-rationally, that you are human beings. And if there were dogs here, I would apprehend that there were dogs or there were trees or there were artifacts and so forth. Apprehension is a pre-rational, pre-demonstrative grasping of the thing as it is. And from a certain number of apprehensions or grasping of things, 
Now, how you extract the species and know the essence of a thing is a hugely, you know, interesting and complicated topic. I mean, how is it that I can, my mind can go out through my senses and grasp what your nature is, and you do that to me, and I don't change you and you don't change me, and we know what each other are in our very being. I know something what you are in your being, you know what I am in my being, and yet in that process, I am not changed by you and you're not changed by me. So I'm pretty mysterious and it's interesting. But that's that's just a given of intellect. And then we begin to make judgments, which Aquinas calls compositions and divisions. Compositions, because you put things together with a cupola, is this is a human being, or you make a division where you 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 divide and you say this is not a human being, or this is not a zebra, this is not an aardvark. Okay, so judgments then can allow us to accrue reasonings. Um, Jonah is a human being. All human beings are capable of laughter. Therefore, although I've never seen Jonah laugh, Jonah is capable of laughter if he were tickled or told the right joke or put in the right circumstances. In fact, he's a rather humorous person, so it's a totally absurd example, so as to not embarrass anyone who is in fact lacking in humor sensibilities. I chose a, an obvious contrasting subject. But that, I mean, Socrates doesn't smile, but Socrates could smile because he's a human and all human beings are capable of smiling. So you can start to get from judgments, reasonings going. These are very didactic examples, not very organic ones, but you get the idea. Okay, so what is faith? Is faith an apprehension of the mystery of the Trinity? Like when you walk in the room and see three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? No. You, you could go to Eucharistic Adoration and you could have a mystical experience or just a discrete, gentle experience of a hard-to-name affective sentiment that Christ is really present in the way you know a person is present, but this is something higher and deeper and more intense or more interior, strangely. You feel the presence of Christ both in the Eucharist and yourself. That could happen. And there's a certain kind of experiential apprehension there, but that's not the act of faith proper because you know Christ is present in the Eucharist when you feel nothing, or you should. And it's not the fruit of a reasoning because it's not something you, you prove to yourself. You can reason about the givens of faith, but you reason from judgments. So what faith is is, in fact, a judgment. And how do you know that the judgment's true, that Christ is raised from the dead and is alive, or that Christ is present in the Eucharist, or that the church is a mystery instituted by Christ, or that the God is the Holy Trinity? How do you know it? You know it as a gift of grace, and you know it through the enunciations of the church. Aquinas says the first principles of the judgments of the church regarding the mystery of God are enunciated in the Nicene Creed. So if you want to know what you know, it's not a crisis. You just look at the Nicene Creed and say, wait, wait, is this just being imposed on me culturally? Authoritarian dogmatics? No, you're baptized, so it's coming out of you from within you. So that's why when you have living faith, what the church teaches can resonate with you from within and give you the, confirm these judgments. Now we live it collectively so other people can we need sometimes other people to help guide us and sharpen our judgment. And those who study theology or those who have episcopal and magisterial authority are meant to discern over time more rigorously and refined fashion in refined fashion the judgments of the church, which are often reasoned conclusions 
or elaborated judgments based on the primal judgments of the first principles. But, you know, basically you all have it inside of you. It's called the uh, census fide, the sense of the faith. It's given with baptism. It's given with conversion. If you don't feel like you feel it enough, just ask the Holy Spirit for it and you'll get it. If you don't feel like you get it the first time you pray for it, keep praying for it. Within six months, if you pray for it every day, you're going to have a very strong sense of the census fide boiling up in you. Like, what is the truth of the judgment of the faith? Do I know that Jesus is alive or do I not know that? I know it. How do I know it? I know it by a gift of grace. What if other people think I'm an ideologue or a strange person or subject to an alien authority by an arbitrary religious organization? Well, you tell them, actually, that's not true. I receive this as a grace of faith. And if it seems strange to you, I understand completely because it's non-evidential, it's based on divine revelation. That being said, you can have it too if you just pray for the grace to receive it. And if you do pray for the grace to receive it, you will receive the grace to receive it, and you will become one of us. <laughs> now, you're laughing at me, but I've done this many times. It's worked every time. I've told many people, like, if you just pray for six months for the grace of faith, you'll receive it, you'll become Catholic. And they're like, what? And, you know, like, yeah. If you have the courage to be open to the fact that you could know God personally through divine, the consent to divine revelation, and you pray for the grace to receive it, He'll give it to you. He wants you to receive it. You just have to be open to it. And then I've had them do that. If they get a little more serious, I say, well, why don't you pray the rosary as an experiment in case it's true? That's, then it's over. <laughs> then it's over. When she's involved, it's over. Anyway. Now, there are reasons of credibility. So, you know, there are miracles. There are the co there's the coherence of the Catholic Church's teaching over time. There's the examples of the saints. There's longevity and, and homogeneity of the Church's um, tradition. You know, there's the imperturbability or indomitability of the existing tradition of the Church. Okay, there's lots of things that you can also point to as reasons of credibility, rational reasons to consent to Revelation. But that won't get you into Revelation as such because it's a grace. You have to find God by grace, by grace we're saved. Okay, so a little bit there about faith. Now, I'm just telling you, you have it. And if you want a little bit more of it or you want to feel it more intensely, just ask for it. If you don't have it or you're not sure, you, somebody just dragged you here because, you know, you were interested in Thomas Aquinas, then you can have faith, too. Just read Thomas Aquinas about faith and ask Thomas Aquinas to pray for you to receive what he received. I'm telling you, it works. Okay. Now I want to ask a second question, which is on your handout. Is the faith inherently or intrinsically contemplative? Now, I want to turn first to what Aquinas says about wisdom. Wisdom is a habit of the mind that is virtuous and intellectual virtue that pertains to the knowledge of the highest causes of things and to the knowledge of the ultimate good. This idea or this definition of wisdom doesn't come from Aquinas, it comes from Aristotle and it's propagated through ancient philosophy and it's adapted by, adopted by many people, including people like Augustine. So what is it to be wise as opposed to be, sci to be scientific? The scientist or the, the, the person who's achieved philosophical science, scientific learning, can explain things in whatever domain. Could be more material, modern scientific, could be more philosophical. But the person who's attained wisdom has knowledge of what is ultimately real in the world, what is ultimately explanatory, and also knows practically how to live in view of or in light of that reality. So there's a kind of atheist wisdom. I mean, the best, the most powerful atheists, like Nietzsche, are wise men. I mean, they're either really wise men or they're false, very good false coinage. 
Nietzsche's very good false coinage because he's not only got an ultimate theory about, you know, everything being not what Christianity says and a kind of artistic view of the project of our life in, in light of our, um, the fact there are no transcendent explanations of reality and no transcendent moral qualities to human existence, but he then has a style of life, a, a way of being, like in Thus Spoke Zarathustra, a wisdom, a path of learning. And, and the great philosophers are like this. I mean, the Stoics had a way of life, and Aristotle has a way of life in view of happiness, in light of, in light of God, contemplative life in light of God. So Aristotle says, is the highest form of happiness. Well, Aquinas thinks that's right, and that if you see the world in light of its most ultimate principle, it's personal. We are persons created by a personal reality for interpersonal behavior, interpersonal re uh, relations, and those relations are ultimately intellectual and therefore, in their highest level, they're contemplative relationships. So to live our life wisely is to live in light of a knowledge of where we are from, which in Christian, um, in the Christian light of faith is knowledge of the Trinity. We're from a communion of persons and a mystery of eternal communion of love and truth and contemplation. The Father begets the Word as the fruit of his contemplation inspires the Holy Spirit with the Word as the radiant love of the Father and the Son shared with the world through the mystery of the Incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the sending of the Holy Spirit. And we can enter into communion with the Holy Trinity in the life of the Church. Therefore, we can know what's most ultimate, and we can live wisely in view of what's most ultimate. Now, that means that for Aquinas, because the faith instills wisdom, two things follow. First, the faith is inherently contemplative, because it leads you to gaze at what is supremely true and what is incomprehensible, not, not, not non-understandable, there is, there's me, me, um, maximum intelligibility in the mystery of God. God is far more intelligible than we are. But, quote, I know, from our perspective, God is not comprehensible since we can get our mind completely around him. It's not a two plus two equals four and I'm done with that kind of thing. It's like an always seeking greater intelligibility form of life. The faith invites us to a contemplative gaze and study and the second thing about that, then, is that because wisdom pertains to what is ultimate in the order of the good, we can learn more about God through loving God. Right? So think about studying a human person. It's, you know, if you study your mother and father philosophically, you can learn about them. But you're also going to pay more attention to the fine grains of who they are if you love them in some particular way, which is typically the case. It's just a, an example from, you know, our relationship to our parents. But the point is friendship, spouses, any, any situation where there's a more pro profound love that can lead to a deeper knowledge. This is all the more true in the order of the theological virtues. The more we love Christ, the more we can come to study Christ, to contemplate Christ, to know Christ. And Christ is eminently more studyable and interesting than even the most interesting of the human beings. Plato or Aristotle or your best friend who's like Plato or Aristotle or whatever. The point is, whatever maximum combination you want to assemble among human beings, however interesting they are and studyable, they're not Jesus. Jesus is God and man and is very interesting and so and very, 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 very good. So the more we enter into 
the mystery of charity, the more we can contemplate more deeply intellectually the mystery of Christ, the mystery of, of God. And then the second thing I want to say about wisdom is because the faith extends the life of the mind to the highest good and the first truth, it immediately taxes our nature to try to go to its highest level in the order of intellectual knowledge. I had a friend at Oxford who was a lapsed Catholic, sometimes practicing evangelical medical doctor. And I can't remember what he got interested in returning to the Catholic faith through conversations with another person who was a Dominican. I at the time was a lay person. And I was watching this happen. And I can't remember what it was. Um, I think he was returning to the idea that really, you know, God, like deity, like that God could be real. And some, he had some kind of idea of modern physics and time. And he said, well, I had to explain it to myself in such a way that I could, I could imagine as a scientist that it could be true philosophically. And that allowed me to consent to the faith. Now, in fact, his theory might not have been so philosophically or scientifically good or necessary. But the point is, as soon as he wanted by movement of grace to consent to the faith, he had to find a way to be open to the idea that God existed. So you can see that nature is still there doing its own thing, even in grace, trying to figure out how to cooperate. So the contemplative life of faith, hope, and charity lifts the intellect up and says, okay, you're going to operate now in the high atmosphere, and you've got to figure out how this works. Now, a lot of people can live a simple faith, but more people who are intellectually agitated or intellectually informed by what we could call sub, sub, uh, subordinate sciences, lesser forms of knowing, very elevated lesser forms of knowing, be they philosophy or political science or uh, chemistry or what, what have you, mathematics, they need to figure out somehow this, how this relationship works. So the, the point is that contempl the contemplative life is not a purely like just ecstatic or mystical or devotional reality. It's an intellectual and it's, an inner, it's, an, it's a matter of the intellect and the heart, but it also then requires of you to kind of figure out how your nature is going to cooperate. Okay, so that's where Aquinas is helpful, at least if the things he thinks metaphysically are defensible, because it, it does, he builds bridges from nature up to openness to God. There was an important debate in the early 20th century between a Jesuit, who I believe he was either teaching in France or in Rome, and a Dominican who taught in Rome, the famous Gary Lagrange, Reginald Gary Lagrange, who taught at the Angelicum, about whether the, the life of faith is intrinsically mystical. I think it was Father Poulain. I don't know if I get his name right. It's like Wool or something like that. Anyway, this, this Jesuit father was a very, very spiritual person, was writing books about the spiritual life, and he believed that the call to the mystical life is a special charismatic call only received by a few because he associated the contemplative life, the mystical life, with extraordinary phenomena. So, for example, when Little Flower has visions or Teresa of Avila levitating, having ecstasies, this is the contemplative life, the mystical life. It's really extraordinary. It does happen, and do it is the case that people continue to receive more or less discreet or more or less extraordinary graces of this kind, and there are great saints who perform miracles and so forth. But um, Aquinas categorizes all that as charismatic phenomena, or gratuit, what he calls gratuitous graces, the graces that are meant to signal that a person is an emissary of God, 
or to confirm that person in a special mission. They're not the heart of faith because faith actually is not about miracles or ecstasies or extraordinary charismatic phenomena. It, faith is primarily about putting the intellect in direct contact with the first truth, and it can coexist with great obscurity and darkness. There is the darkness of the faith, the non-evidential darkness of the faith. Sometimes the faith is very luminous and clear, especially if you live it in a very practicing way, and sometimes it's very obscure. And so Gary Lagrange talked about the clair obscure de la foi in French, the clarity and obscurity of the, of the faith, and the Italians talk about the chiascuro, the clarity and obscurity of the faith. The faith is sometimes clear, sometimes obscure, and it's like rain and sunshine, and God works through both. And the, the, the rain and the obscurity can be also blessings, although we don't always feel it that way. So what Gary Lagrange argued was because of its formal object, the first truth, and because the love that motivates it is oriented toward union with God, the Trinity, the faith is intrinsically mystical. So that means there is a call to the mystical life or the contemplative life that's at the heart of every Christian vocation. And it doesn't require any charismatic phenomena or extraordinary experiences, although those are great. And if you are, you have every right to ask God for them, he has no obligation to give them to you. But that's okay. You're his child. You can ask him for things. That's why you ask God the Father for what you want, and he'll give you what he thinks you need. Servet Pinkers, who you've probably heard mentioned in these days, a great Belgian Dominican from the late 20th century, talks about how faith, because it's oriented to the highest good, is oriented towards the greatest happiness, the greatest beatitude. So because of its teleology, the final end toward which the, the life of faith and hope and charity is oriented, the faith is also inherently mystical because it's oriented toward union, union of love of our hearts with Christ, with the Trinity. Now, all this can be tied in a little bit with the Aquinas' understanding of prayer. Aquinas, the, the question on prayer in the Secunda Secunda is the longest question in the Summa. I can't remember how many articles there are, something like 19. And Aquinas wrote basically a little book on prayer in the middle of the Summa Theologiae. And he asks, as would be typical of him, is prayer an act of the will or an act of the mind? And, you know, if you had a, like a radar gun, you went out and you go out in the parishes with little intellectual radar guns. Is prayer an act of the intellect or the mind? You register to make, is, it, is prayer an act of the heart or the mind? Heart, 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 heart. But Aquinas says mind. God bless you, Thomas Aquinas. Okay, so why? Now, he asks, he asks right after that, what is devotion and, and is an act of the will? It turns out. It's like a, two pistons in a car, okay? So prayer in the mind, devotion in the heart, and they go together. Okay, so he's trying to get it scientifically. Actually, I think it's devotion first and prayer second. He's in the virtue of justice. It's interesting. It's a just thing to pray to God. It's unjust to not pray to God. We're the kind of being that is only in a right order with ourselves and the universe and God if we're praying. If that's true anthropologically, then that explains something of what's going on in the world when people, you know, when lives, people are not happy, things are not working out. Like, have you tried praying? Um, and practicing it as a habit means it's a discipline. It's not just like a kind of psychological whim, a sharing session, a, you know, journaling. It's, you know, prayer is a kind of, it's a kind of labor. It's like learning something difficult and you can become 
good at it or excellent at it by doing it well and rightly, frequently, habitually, and promptly. Now, an act of the mind, it, why is it an act of the mind? Because you lift your heart, and you lift your mind up to consider the first truth. Right? So this ties in with faith. Faith is putting you in contact with the mystery in the darkness of faith, and you're, you're following it. You're consenting to that. You're leading your mind. You're letting your mind go up to the light in the faith, up to the ultimate perspective. You're trying to look at God, look at God intellectually in judgment, and think on God through the medium of Holy Scripture and the sacraments, which I'll talk about in a minute. You have helps. How do I lift my mind up to God, Father? Okay, we'll talk about that. Okay, You lift up your mind to God, and you try to devote your life to God. Now, devotion here is not doing the Sacred Heart devotion, which is a very beautiful devotion, but it's more interior in the definition. Devotio in Latin is to put your heart under the sway of divine goodness, to be drawn let yourself be drawn into divine goodness. So you look into the divine goodness, you look into the fire, and you let the fire draw you into its warmth, the heart of the heart of Christ. And to be drawn into the goodness of God, and then to be devoted to God is also then to serve God, to put yourself under what is first so that you're not a slave to what is second. And as we know, when you serve God, you're ennobled in yourself rather than disennobled in yourself. You grow in autonomy vis-a-vis -vis creatures, and you become more naturally yourself. So prayer is intrinsically, or sorry, interiorly motivated by the lifting up of the mind to consideration of the, the mystery of God and the devotion to the goodness of Christ, the goodness of the Father, through the medium of faith. And then it's embodied, and this is where Aquinas talks about adoration, which is to live out your prayer physically in your body, because you are one hylomorphic subject. You are not simply a cognitive uh, you know, agent happening to be uh, accidentally united to a mechanical, organic machine that God has joined you to for a little while before the separation occurs. Right? Your, your body is, in, is part of the very substance of your being, right? So you are... I am my soul and body as a single composite substance. So if I want to live seriously, I need to live in my body. Or if I don't live seriously, what I believe in my body, I'm probably not really living it. And then sacrifice for Aquinas is when you offer things to God externally in a way that is fitting. And he says it's of the natural law that human civilization should offer sacrifice to God through liturgical forms of collective ritual. And then he says, how will we know what to do? We don't know what to offer God or how we can offer something to God. We need God to reveal to us what the sacrifice is. Or as little Isaac said, Father, where will we get the sacrifice? Well, we know where the sacrifice has come from now. And we have the sacrifice present on the altar. And we offer the sacrifice to God. So... Adoration in the body, sacrifice in the liturgical forms instituted by Christ. These are all principles of the spiritual life, which we live out corporeally and collectively, because it's easier to pray with other people than pray alone. That's the first thing you learn in religious life. It's kind of what you knew when you entered, just but it's true more you know, commonly. It's a lot easier to pray for an hour in front of the Blessed Sacrament if there's a lot of other people there with you and everybody's trying. It's also true in Dominican life to study in the morning or all day or whatever it is, because everybody else is studying, you know, you have 
you have a kind of common accountability. So collectivities of various sorts matter. Friendships, uh, congregations, chapters, um, movements, that kind of thing. You know, we need friends and associations to live rightly the collective life of spirituality. The gifts of the Holy Spirit that help us are movements of the Holy Spirit from within faith that intensify the life of the mind in its communion with Christ. What are these? Well, there are four gifts of the Holy Spirit that are intellectual. I'm only going to talk about uh, three of them that are theoretical intellect, understanding, wisdom, and knowledge. In Latin, intellectus sapientia, scientia. Intellectus is a kind of penetration. It's allowing, it's allowing the reality of the mystery of God to inform the mind. It's very similar to apprehension, actually. So now to go back to that apprehension idea, you come in the room, you see a bunch of persons, you know, they're not cardboard cutouts. You just apprehend they're, they're there. Well, so the judgment, the judgment of faith can by moment in, be enriched by a movement of the Holy Spirit to allow the mind to grasp more deeply the inner mysteries of God. You could be, for example, in Eucharistic adoration, and God could give you a very intense, burning knowledge of the mind and heart that Christ is present in the Eucharist. I've talked to many people as a priest who've had that experience, so I don't know that it's universal, but it's, it happens. Or you could uh, be meditating on Aquinas' treatise on the Holy Trinity, reading the question on the Holy Spirit as love, and you could feel a deep new understanding of the Holy Spirit as a person who you've never prayed to before, but now you start to think that the Holy Spirit's a person living in you, inspiring you. Your whole spiritual life kind of is elevated a little bit. Wisdom is the virtue of con contemplation that is occurs through new movements of love because you are joined more deeply to the goodness of God and you see things in light of God. So wisdom allows you perspective to know the Holy Trinity more deeply and see what is the Trinity doing in the world. I mean, the great kind of document of wisdom, in the, one of the great documents of wisdom, it's like vivid. In the tradition is Catherine of Siena's dialogue, where Catherine looks out at the whole of the world through our series of meditations in light of the Father's vision of the world. And she, the Father speaks to her through her in an elocution that seemingly is extraordinary and, and you know, more based on a, a, chariz, a charismatic grace. But the Father gives her this kind of vision of wisdom of how he governs the world providentially. She's seeing all things as God's friend and daughter in light of the plenitude of wisdom that's in God. And scientia, or knowledge, is the knowledge of, is the, is the contemplative perspective on all things secondary understood in light of what's primary. It's like explaining what matters in the world in light of the Trinity. Scientia is associated with the blessedness of those who mourn, the beatitude of mourning by Aquinas and Augustine. Why would you mourn if you have knowledge? Because you see in light of the Trinity and the mystery of Christ how um, typically so many human beings set their minds and hearts only on what is secondary and not on what is primary. And the gift of knowledge teaches you to treat what is really second, what is truly secondary as truly secondary. You might say it pur purges the mind and heart of idols so that the absolute can be the absolute. And it also makes you vulnerable to see the 
the incongruity of what others have, or what we ourselves have set our hearts on that needs to be purified. This is all best lived out in the practical order through the sacramental organism. What is that? Is that like an animal I've never heard of? Well, no, it's the organic relationship between the seven sacraments. And it means, if you wanted to think of it in a very bad way that a lot of Catholics do, you could just call it following the rules. But that's a stupid way to think about it. And unfortunately, it's the common way to think about it. We need to go out and convince people to think about it a better way, which is an ontological way of thinking about it, which is the only real way to think about it. And that is that the sacraments ontologically are sources of grace. They cause grace in different ways that are organically related to one another. The Eucharist can, can cause the forgiveness of venial sins because it can strengthen love. That's its primary grace. And because venial sins can be healed by the strengthening of love, the Eucharist can receive, can, receiving the Eucharist with fervor can, can forgive venial sins. But the Eucharist doesn't forgive mortal sins because mortal sins evacuate the soul of charity. And the Eucharist is a sacrament for those who are in a state of, of grace and are, and are living in charity. So you have to use the right thing for the right purpose. Now, confession, it's true, is maybe less psychologically impedible than going to communion. But nevertheless, it's, it's a practicable uh, sacrament. And it gives you something very important that you don't get from the Eucharist, which is forgiveness of sins, deeper contrition of heart, and a better understanding of your own self in light of God. And therefore, it makes you able to practice greater growth in fidelity, um, well, I would say sensitivity to the inner life of God in you. Right? The, the con frequent confession makes you more sensitive to the Holy Spirit, and they can stabilize you in friendship with God and dispose you to deeper communion in the sacrament of the Eucharist, which is a great and most a special place to nourish your mind and your, and your heart in just the ways we've been talking about. There's a reason it looks like food. It's nourishing your mind. The eternal word is casting light into the contemplative light into the mind of the faithful and nourishing the heart and strengthening with charity. The best disposition is to have that refinement of soul that's gotten through um, frequent confession. I mean by that weekly or bi-weekly. Some people think it's an obsessive amount. It's a normal amount. But... You know, monthly is like kind of a minimal amount, really, truly. If you want to have a, if you want to have a spiritual life, if you want a spiritual life with God, that's why you think, that's a, that's a rule. You just set a rule. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I said a, it's like, it's a, it's, a, it's a suggestion, but it's, it's based on the ontology of, of I mean, like, you could, you could go put, we could put you under this radiation lamp and you will incur no damage. You will only come out healthier, stronger, and happier. You can go as often as you want. Doctors don't recommend every day, but week, weekly or bi-weekly will make you happy. Okay. No, I don't want it. I don't want it. Why? What? I just don't like, I just don't, I don't know why. We know why you don't like, you have to overcome the psychological side of not wanting to go because you have to go to the higher good. The highest good is not psychological comfort in this case. It's going into God. And then, you know, things like marriage are related to this, of course, because to get married, you know, are confirmed. To get confirmed and married, you need to kind of uh, think about how these things are related. You know, some people who want to get married but not get married in the church, okay, 
put it if you want to marry somebody who doesn't want to get married in the church the, you can't just pretend the sacrament of marriage is not a reality that you're going to abstract from that but you're going to it's okay because i'm still reading the big books you have to you have to live in the mystery of the sacramental life instituted by christ okay so last ideas realizing christ as a person so the faith gives you what Professor Eleanor Stump sometimes calls following Martin Buber, second person knowledge. Second person knowledge is, you know, grammatical reference to it. Like I call you, you, I speak about me. You speak about you, to, you call me, you, I call you, you. Um, it's the relationship between two persons where the intellectual life is interior to an, in, an interior personal relationship. It's kind of hard. It's mysterious philosophically what that is. It's worth, it's worth more work understanding that, right? Because you can understand human being as a third in third person knowledge. You know, each one of you here is a human being. Human beings are capable of smiling. Human beings um, are capable of smiling because they have rational souls that understand irony and they have bodies. Therefore, animals because they don't have rational souls are not capable of smiling. And angels are not capable of smiling because they have spirituality but no bodies. So only human beings can smile. It's interesting. But it's different than when you're actually talking to a person and they're smiling and you're thinking about what that means about them. And you're still also then learning something about human persons in that person in particular. Our life is lived between second person stances of knowledge and third person analysis. And we do both all the time. We talk about the third person analysis in second person relationships. We talk about second person relationships in third person analysis, which is what I'm doing right now. The faith is both. You're in a second person stance with Christ. So how do you discover Christ more deeply as a person who knows you, who is God and man, who is giving you grace, who is really present mysteriously in his resurrected life, and who invites us to a contemplative relationship with him? Well, it obviously can help to study Christ theoretically. Aquinas wrote a giant book about Jesus. It's called the third part of the Summa Theologiae. But it also helps to talk to him. It's different than talking to another second person subject or friend because he happens to also be the light of the world, the second person of the Trinity, God, who can illumine your intellect from within, even as you can talk to him as a human being who's your friend. Okay, so... Talking to Christ is talking to a human being who's God, who can help understand you as a human being and reveal himself to you in a somewhat human way, and who can also enlighten your mind with wisdom, with understanding, with sciencia. I mean, he's the one giving these gifts, the Holy Spirit. He and the Spirit are giving these gifts with the Father. But it's not just about acquiring second. Contemplation is not just about studying Christ in third-person knowledge or studying knowing Christ in second-person knowledge. It's also about serving Christ in wisdom and prudence, becoming, as Ignatius of Loyola would say, a soldier of Christ, or as Catherine of Siena would say, a daughter or of the Father and a spouse of Christ. It's becoming uni united with Christ, not only in the intimacy of private prayer, personal prayer, but also in the exterior world. And what does Christ enjoin upon us in the exterior world? The life of charity and the virtues. And what is charity? to will the good of the other, to will the good of the other. When people are really close to Christ in practical friendship with him, what do they do? 
It's very simple. They do all the good they can do for other people in the light of Christ and motivated by his charity. They just do all the good they can do. You look, look at Mother Teresa. You know, she was just doing all the good she could do at every moment. And Catherine Siena, you know, you look at all the crazy stuff she did in her life. I mean, fat, fantastically crazy. Moving the Pope back to Avignon, making peace between Genoa and the rival cities, going out to treat the victims in the plague, accompanying the penitents to their death by, you know, when they were going to be decapitated after they'd murdered people, getting the most famous, infamous uh, people to repent, cult, you know, reforming her order. I mean, it's maximal, but she did all the good she could do for God in friendship for Christ, with Christ. So a contemplative life is also the most practical life in the Christian order. Because you know Christ, you serve him, and you seek to ask him in his providence that you can find ways to do good, to, to seek the good of others. And a particular form of seeking the good of others is through teaching them in the life of the mind. Aquinas says the greatest mercy to another is to teach them the truth. It's better, it's greater than the corporeal works of mercy. There are spiritual works of mercy, corporeal works of mercy. He says the greatest spiritual work of mercy is to teach the truth to others for their own good and human flourishing. You can do that for Christ. And you can do that for Christ, actually, if you're just teaching the mathematics or, I mean, just mathematics. I mean, I'm terrible at mathematics, so I, you know, I have the I have those standard nightmares where you, you can't remember how to do any calculus and you're in trouble. Anyway, but I mean... The point is mathematics is not immediately related to, to the Trinity. It, it is related to Trinity, but not immediately to teach calculus. But you can teach calculus as a way to help people in their larger framework of life as a service of Christ. You can also teach them metaphysics or ethics, or you can teach them theology, or you can teach them scripture um, or church history. I mean, there's a lot of ways to bring people into the ambit of God through that service too. So we are, you can't divorce your public prudence from your personal contemplative life. It all goes together. And that builds up a joyous unity of life. So I kind of want to finish with that idea. And I'll just say a, a, a brief word about mental prayer at the end here. And that is this. Um, Mental, okay, the very phrase mental prayer is a bit Carmelite more than Dominican, and it, in, it suggests a kind of individual pursuit of knowledge of God or union with God outside the liturgical monastic ambit. You know, it's like as soon as I say mental prayer, you may be thinking about praying alone in a room, reading John the Cross or something. But um, he calls it horizon in Spanish, or it's like horizon in. In Latin, this the life of the of the mind lifted up into God in a disciplined way. The best propedeutics to mental prayer are the medit the contemplative reading of the New Testament, and in the presence, if possible, the Blessed Sacrament. But that's not essential. Allied with an intentional desire to grow in faith, hope, and charity, in worship and contemplation of God. So, concretely, what that looks like is. It's good to have a daily, an intellectual person, who a person with strong intellectual dispositions in the Catholic tradition, does well to try to make time if they can, especially prior to children, because it gets harder afterwards, 20 or 30 minutes a day to put themselves in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament, or if not at home with the Bible, to take time to meditate on the presence of Christ as a person through the meat, received through the medium of New Testament revelation. And what, I, what that would look like with something like this, 
you take John 15 or 16, the Gospel of John, and you start reading where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, or I am the way, the truth, and the life. And instead of trying to analyze exactly what John is doing, which is a noble exegetical endeavor, you try to think about who Jesus is in his very person based on what he's just told you. I am the way. You go back to that judgment. Go back to that second or second person judgment. You, Lord, are the way. You are the way. I want to believe you are the way. You tell Jesus that. I want to have faith in you. I want to hope in you and live my life practically in view of you as the way, in light of you as the way. I want to love you above all things. Okay, so now you've used scripture to think about who Jesus is, what he is, and how you're in that second person relationship with him in the light of his objective teaching. And you let the word of God illumine your own heart and mind. You lift your heart and mind up into God, and you try to put yourself in the darkness of faith, in the poverty of hope, in the presence of Christ, and let him teach you. And you might think about that saying and pray to him for a few minutes or a minute or two, and then you might go on to another. Philip, he who sees me, sees the Father. I and the Father are one. And you can say, acts of faith, God, I believe you are my Father. I believe you and the, and the Son are one. I believe Jesus in your divinity. I want to believe. I want to serve. I want to know thee. Okay, so you, you know, the point is you try to cultivate a second order friendship with Christ based on his teaching. Try to find his presence, felt or unfelt, in the darkness of faith or in the clarity of the faith. And let that lead you into a habitual love of Christ and a devotion to Christ to want to be one who knows him, contemplates him, and serves him. And it's the same thing with that thing I said at the beginning. If you do it for six months, you'll see. It becomes very difficult to avoid doing it if you do it for a certain amount of time because it lifts you up into a habit of enjoyment of the presence of Christ. And that's a very high enjoyment. We might even call that a beatitude. Thank you, Father. When you were talking about the census day and like how you would tell people just, you know, ask the Holy Spirit for it, just keep asking for six months. Um, I seem to have a habit of talking with a lot of Mormon missionaries. Yeah. And I would wonder how would be a good way to bring that and kind of con or maybe to contrast that with how they talk about yeah. like yeah. Okay, so he knows something that he's not disclosing to you, but I will disclose to you if you don't know it, which is that in the Mormon tradition, as you know, they, they send out missionaries. It's a customary service of the young men. And when they are confronted with intellectual problems by their interlocutors, they are trained to practice a, a devotional. They undertake a devotional practice where they pray to their Heavenly Father in their hearts to confirm that the Book of Mormon is true. And they will tell you that, well, it's true. I'll say things like, you know, I don't think God has a body. I mean, look at the arguments in, on divine simplicity, the third question of the Summa Theologiae. Let's sit down and look at those. This has actually happened. Not, I didn't do this with some of the monks I know did this and, you know, studied it with them. And they're like, yep, well, that reasoning is absolutely, you know, valid. I mean, it looks like God has no body. But I have prayed the prayer to my Heavenly Father in my heart, and I know the Book of Mormon is true. And so when you, you get in intellectual arguments with them, they will always back into that fideistic move. So, I mean, um, on the one hand, 
the main reason I know the Book of Mormon is not the truth and that the Christian revelation is true is because I know it. <laughs> I mean, I'm not trying to get out of the question. I mean, the problem is that faith is the first principle. On the other hand, this is where the reasons of credibility come in and the questions of the um, discredibility or incredibility of other forms of you know, claims to claimants to revelation. And there there are there's a range. I mean, so the Book of Mormon is particularly, I mean, it's I just say this without any disdain. I mean, but it's 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 the most implausible thing in the world. I mean, it's not it's not reasonable to believe that that is divine revelation for many reasons. And there's this recent one, two, three document which shows how, you know, in the Book of Mormon, the italicized words that the angel Moroni dictated in it that were recorded in italicis, are the italicized words from the King James Version that were put in italics by the translators of the original King James Version to denote that those were not words from the original Hebrew, that they were adding in English to, as, you know, to, to, to make the English translation more melodious. So it's strange that you get that in the Bible, the fact that there's no 12th tribe going to South America, and you know, the fact that there aren't these special racial punishments that are enunciated in our DNA uh, based on the colors of our skin and all this kind of madness. So, I mean, you, you do have some embarrassing, uh, irrational features there, and that should tell us that religion is a dangerous business and that we could see the life of our mind in superstitious uh, and dangerous ways. And Aquinas on superstition is very good about looking at how religion, because precisely because it's such a powerful feature of our disposition in our life, it can lead us into delusion, and that can even happen in the Catholic Church through sectarian movements and gurus and, you know, people who are luminist spiritual directors or um, kind of counterfeit saints and things like that. So that's why you do have to have a disciplinary structure in the church and also in the wider world. You need to be careful about superstition. And so we have to have a way to talk about rational criteria. Some things are more subtle. I mean, it's more difficult to make an analysis of the rational credibility of the Quran because there are problems about the historicity in terms of the logical coherence of their claims that this is a dictated revelation, that Arabic pre-existed our world. But there are also, they have, they believe the Arabic was created first. The Arabic of the Quran is created first and the world is created in light of that Arabic. So the problem is that there are hymns that are in the document of the Quran that we can tell, we know come from like Syria and Syriac hymns from a century before. So it's, it's hard to figure out how that works as a theological claim about no no human authorship, but in you know I think a lot of Muslims see that that is a problem. But that's that's an, they have a, they also have their own apologetic sort of structure, and it's, it's important not to, to judge too quickly that we that it's that's as evidentially irrational in that case. But this is where you go when you get into intellectual. And, and so John Henry Newman, when he talks about the um, illative sense in the grammar of assent talks about how you have to like look at lots of convergent factors of rationality. And so one of them would be the plausibility of the revelation structure, the possible historicity of it, or the fraudulent character of it. It would also in, in have to do with the internal coherence, the, the moral content, the way it illuminates or doesn't illuminate human existence. So you've got lots of, then you do need to get into criteria of rationality. And most intellectual people you talk to they're going to need to do some of that. So it's it's not an either and, it's a both, it's not an either or, it's a both and. But I do think that that being said, a lot of times people do just need to, like there are plenty of people who are intellectual who don't see the difficulties in terms of, uh, they don't think it's per se irrational. They just can't tell if it's true. And they need to just pray. 
or at least one of the things they need to do is just pray, as well as read. Could you elaborate a bit on like you know people who are very intent on seeking out like you know gifts of prophecy or vision or, or dreams? Well, there's not one theology of this in the Catholic Church, but I mean I do think so. If you want to read something on this, it's short and helpful. If you get Gary Goulagrange's commentary on the trees on Grace and Aquinas, it's a book called Grace, Gary Goulagrange Grace. You can find it online. EWTN has a copy online. It's hard to order it right now. It's out of print. And you go to the section on the comment, the commentary on question 111, Article 1, I think it is. Is it 111 1 or 111 2? He goes through a diagram of all the charismatic graces as Aquinas understands them and analyzes them in question 111 in the Primus Secundae. It's about five pages long. And you'll see like what Aquinas thinks the charismatic graces or gratuitous graces are supposed to be doing. And it's, I think, a very helpful picture, um, in part because it, it shows how the greatest charismatic graces are in the service of the cultivation of the theological virtues, because the theological virtues sanctify us. So highest on the list is Sermo Sapientia, the words of wisdom given to doctors of the church, something like what you see in Catherine Siena's dialogue. But for that matter, in Thomas Aquinas' Summa or Augustine's Confessions, where you have a kind of wisdom perspective that invites people to go into the faith. I mean, some people will say, why did you take Catholicism seriously? Why did you become Christian? I read the Confessions of Augustine. Or well, you know, that's a charism for Aquinas of a high instance. And then it can also be, you know, assisting people in preaching. Um, and then he has a, yeah, some of these kinds of intellectual things. Um, when it comes to miracles, Speaking in tongues for Aquinas, is, as it was, I think, in the book of Acts, is speaking a language that you don't know or, or understanding people when they speak to you in a language you don't know or them understanding you when you speak your own language by a miracle. And there's many cases of this in, in history. Casuciana, just to take another example, wanted to read Latin, but she was not lettered. So she prayed for the grace to read Latin because she wanted to study theology in the Bible, and God just infused in her a gift. And Raymond of um, Capua, who was her spiritual director who matched the order, was skeptical. And so he, under oath, uh, asked her to name him the syllables and letters of the Latin alphabet, the syllables, the words in Latin. And she could, she could barely make out what a syllable was, and she had no idea what the letters were. She didn't know they're, what they were or what they, how they were pronounced. So she could read Latin without passing through any kind of the ordinary knowledge of letters and symbols uh, that we have, which means it was infused. I mean, he, there were many, he documents many miracles she performed and how it converted him to like, but why was she performing the miracles and why was she given this gift of tongues? It's all in view of the doctrine and the spiritual doctrine of transformative, transformative love so to vindicate also her mission of reform in the church which was an ethical, spiritual form of love. And so there's an organic relationship between these things. So can people, yeah, I mean, people could say today we need miracle workers to make secular people wake up. So I'm going to pray to be a miracle worker. And there are priests. I've known one or two priests who had a, a gift of miracles, like of physical healing. Uh, there's some lay people I've met who have that, where they pray over someone and they can be, um, affected physically, healed miraculously, that exists as a charism. 
I don't think it's necessarily wrong to want it if you want it for the right reasons and if you really understand that it's not that essential to sanctity, but it could be for a person in a particular time and place useful, like if a missionary prayed, just as a missionary could pray for the grace to learn the language of the people he's speaking to well, so he could also pray for miraculous knowledge of language based on the imperative to teach now. But everything's contextual, with, and it has to do with whether you're trying to do something out of charity and for charity. And if you, but I mean, obviously the danger here is to invert the order of hierarchy between the charismatic graces and the sanctifying graces, and to think you're really holy when you have the charismatic graces. And that's the big mistake. And you do see that. And then, you know, that when that gets desperate, you've got to start making strange noises in order to prove that you love God. And, you know, if you if you people playing glossolalia or so-called contemporary glossolalia, it could be a way of, like, praying to God that invites them, like, to a very free expression of kind of a physical love of God. I mean, it's I, I don't think you can say it, it's necessarily something wrong with it, but I, I don't think if you create a hierarchy and say, like, only people who do this are fr like love God, that's implausible based on lots of principles of theology and tradition. Right, so I, I mean you can get you can get places where people get overzealous for the charismatic graces as like determinative of the authenticity of the Christian.